Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's election day, but many Ontarians feel it's already settled, and that could lead to low turnout due to lack of interest. Could that turn the tables? We'll discuss that. We'll also get the latest on the Ukraine-Russia war with Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University, and our mass shootings that have accrued over the United States over the last couple of weeks, making people cynical and jaded. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with on the program today, of course, this is Election Day here in the province of Ontario. The uh, polls open about nine minutes ago, and uh, they'll be open until nine o'clock tonight. Get out and vote. If you've voted in one of the advanced polls, good for you. If you haven't voted yet, please do. Uh, it'll only take a couple of minutes, and it's 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 what this country is all about. It's about democracy and electing governments. And uh, it's a big day today, uh, notwithstanding the fact that many people seem to think it's a done deal. There's, there's still a need to vote. Uh, I know the uh, folks at Ipsos have been doing some polling about how Ontarians think about this. And uh, Sean Simpson, the uh, vice president of Ipsos, says, that, well, I'll, he's absolutely right. A lot of people here feel, well, it's already settled. In an election that seems to be a bit of a foregone conclusion, meaning that the progressive conservatives are extremely likely to be reelected again. So if you already know what's going to happen and you feel like, therefore, your vote maybe doesn't count as much as it would in a close election, that's yet another reason to uh, to stay home uh, rather than go out and cast your vote if, if you don't think it matters too much. So, uh, nonetheless, uh, we still need to get out there and vote because uh, uh, the pollsters have been wrong before uh, simply because, uh, well, more people came out to vote than they used to do. And, and that, that's always a, a, an iffy thing until we actually start counting the votes after 9 o'clock this evening. Uh, but it's a big day for an awful lot of people, and uh, there are some serious outcomes uh, that could be the result of this. Yeah, Doug Ford may, in fact, become the premier one more time. Uh, or not, we don't know that, and uh, the fate of the other leaders is very much up in the air because of what's happening. So to try to make some sense of all of this, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program Peggy Nash. Peggy, of course, is a former NDP finance critic, author of the book Women Winning Office, an activist guide to getting elected, which is now available. We'll talk about that in a couple of seconds. Peggy, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today. Uh, thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, we'll talk about the book in a couple of seconds. A lot of people are excited about that because we've been talking about uh, it coming out for the last little while. Let's let's talk about this. Uh, you've been in the wars before, down in the trenches on, in days like this. What's what's election day like for a candidate? Oh, for a candidate, it's uh, it's both nerve wracking and a bit of a blur. And <laughs> candidates can candidates can handle it differently. Some just want to at time and and collect themselves ground themselves personally i usually like to keep really busy on election day and not dwell on things too much so i would uh, i would go around and visit uh what are called zone houses uh sometimes in a campaign you'll set up somebody will open their own home and it's a place for volunteers to come and check in uh, get some food and and uh, then head back out uh, because they your volunteers on election day are trying to uh, encourage people to get out and vote. They've already made their decisions. So you want to get to the people who have said they will support you. You knock on their door. You remind them it's election day. Why don't you come out and vote? So uh, I would like to go around and thank people uh, for volunteering and just keep busy so I didn't have to think about the outcome. 
That's one of the big days, isn't it, during a campaign? I mean, there's a lot to it, of course. You know, once you have the campaign office and you've got, as you mentioned, the volunteers and you've got people that are going to be putting up signs and the brochures, et cetera. But E-Day is the day, I mean, because none of that counts if you don't get people out to vote, does it? You're exactly right. It, everything that you do is about identify, is it persuading people to support you, identifying who's going to support you, but then that doesn't matter if people don't actually get out and vote. So if, as a candidate, if someone has told you or your volunteer, yes, I'm, I'm supporting Peggy, you want to get that person out to vote. And so that's why on election day, if you have not gone to the advance polls, you will often find volunteers send, putting a reminder notice in your door or knocking on your door and encouraging you to vote. And they can go and see the voter registration sheets at the, at the polls and see if you voted. So if they find it's, it's in the evening and you've not yet voted, they may come back and circle around again and say, hey, you said you were going to vote this afternoon. I noticed you haven't voted. Why don't we go out now? <laughs> so, hey, yeah, want a ride? We'll give you a ride. I mean, they'll, they'll go to any lengths just to get you out there, won't they? <laughs> well, and that's that's right. there's nothing wrong with that. No, I mean, especially, you know, today it's a beautiful day. It's a perfect day for mm-hmm. uh, for voting. But sometimes if the weather is bad and if someone, you know, has a disability or they're a senior or they've got, you know, small children and it's a hike to get to the polling station, you want to encourage them to vote by offering them a lift or or you know, whatever they need in order to get to the polls. And you may think, oh, my goodness, all that for one vote. But, you know, elections can come down to a handful of votes. I mean, theoretically, it could come down to one vote. So every, I always say to people, every single vote matters. It's it's your opportunity to play a role in deciding your government, which makes big decisions that affect your life. So don't squander it. Don't let someone else take away your voice by voting and you don't vote. Well, listen, and to that point, I mean, you and I have both talked to defeated candidates over the years, and there are winners and losers in these things. And almost every one of them will say the same thing. is that They run into 100 people after the election and say, gee, I was going to vote for you, Peggy, but I figured you had it in the bag, so I, you know... <laughs> And geez, you know, and it's frustrating, but vote. That's that's the key message here. Let, let's talk about the personalities involved in this. Uh, the four main political parties, of course. Uh, it, the, the polls say uh, this is probably going to be a re-election of the Doug Ford government, and and we'll see if that happens or not. But the the subplots to these are always interesting. I make Schreiner from the Greens how that did very well in the debates. I, I don't know if mm-hmm. that's going to translate into any more votes. He'd like to see a couple more Greens in the legislature. But let's talk about Andrea Horvath and, and Del Duca, Stephen Del Duca. Uh, you've heard the rumors, I guess, for the last couple of elections, Peggy, that uh, the NDP and, and Andrea Horvath may uh, part a company after this election. There's rumors that she may run for mayor in Hamilton. We don't know what's going on. But she even sounded kind of uh, pragmatic about it, you know, as if it had already been decided when she was speaking in Ottawa yesterday, when she said, well, whatever the polls say, then, then I'm going to make my decision based on that. She wasn't saying I'm going to fight and fight and fight. Uh, I guess every politician has a best before date. Do you think she's reached hers? Uh, you know, the NDP does not have a history of offing its leaders. <laughs> I would say Tom Mulcair was was. Uh, yeah, that was yeah, that was a shock to Tom too, though, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. 
but um, you have to you have to wonder for Andrea herself after four elections. I mean, I know what it's like to be a candidate. I know what it's like to be a leadership candidate, but to actually be the leader in a campaign. I mean, you're talking about a seven day a week, very intense, long hour job where every single word you uh, word you utter is scrutinized and and uh, you know criticized and I I have to wonder if Andrea herself after a given point in time may say you know what I think I might want to do something else in my life but uh, yeah it is it is you know unusual for for a leader to to go this long on the other hand jack layton was was four terms before he yep. died four campaigns and i'll i'll tell you if uh, jack hadn't died after the 2011 election uh people were very enthusiastic about him leading the party in 2015 but of course he he died shortly after mm-hmm. the 2011 election heard of for leaders to go for um, for a number of years, a number of campaigns. I think for the NDP, what Andrea Horvath needs to show is that she can continue on an arc of growth. So the plan is always to win, and I don't know if that's in the cards this time. I don't want to prejudge the voters. But if it's not, if she can show that she is continuing to grow the party and uh, gain more seats and win more votes, then, you know, that'll, that'll complicate her decisions uh, a little more. But these are, these are complex questions. I don't think anyone before a vote wants to speculate about a leader's future plans because, you know, all these polls, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, kind of corny to say it, but the only poll that really matters is on election day. And exactly. for all the pollster, pollsters who say they know in advance what's going to happen, I have two words for them. Donald Trump. <laughs> they all predicted he could not win, and guess what? He was elected. Uh, not There's always going to be some surprises. There's always It happens surprises. from time to time. You got what, about, what about Del Duca? This is interesting. I'm hearing a lot of rumors from some of my sources at Queen's Park uh, that the Liberal Party themselves are, are a little disenchanted with Del Duca as a, as a leader. Uh, the, the rumor seems to be, and again, as you say, we've got to wait till they count the votes, but he may not even win his own riding. Uh, they don't want another leader who's going to be sitting in the gallery watching. You know, They want somebody who's going to be in the fight. Uh, and and there's, there seems to be some, some concern in the ranks. Now it would be unusual, as you said, Peggy, for a party to you know dump a guy after one. But I mean, you know, Stefan Dion. I mean, it's happened before when they just say, "Whoa, whoa, buyer's remorse here." Let's. Uh, is is he in trouble? Do you think? Uh, he's insisting that this will not be his only campaign as leader. It may not be um, his call, though. Uh, yeah, I mean that's true, and I find that the liberals. Um, Liberals and conservatives are much less tolerant of an unsuccessful leader. We can see that federally in the revolving door of of conservative leadership campaigns. We saw that with the liberals, where I think they blew through four leaders uh, in succession uh, until um, Mr. Trudeau was elected leader. So they seem to be less tolerant of of, uh, lack of success. 
I don't know. I mean, I mean they're, I he's, they're going to increase their seat total, obviously. You couldn't get much lower than they are now, so that that's fine. And they're not but, even know, an official party right now. They've only exactly. got seven uh, seats. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think for Mr. Del Duca, the bar is is a bit higher. I think he needs to show not only that uh, that he can gain seats, but I think he probably needs to show he can get to second place. And if that doesn't mm-hmm. happen, and if he doesn't win a seat, there may be a lot of rumbling in the Liberal Party. It's it's going to be fascinating. Look, I got a couple of minutes left. Uh, talk to us about the book now. It's it's available right now. <laughs> uh, Women winning office: An activist guide to getting elected. Uh, we just talked about people like Andrea Horvath, or Sheila Copps, or our Hamilton listeners. I mean, we all know that there have been some very successful uh, women in the political arena over the years. The, the NDP uh, leaders, of course, Sandra Ricano, uh and Rachel Notley in, Saskatchewan, in Alberta, rally, who may actually you know, end up winning the next election. Uh, but it's a tough road, uh, and it's a tougher road for women, and we know that. And, and uh, I, I'm fascinated about the book, uh, and it's available now. Let's talk a little bit about it. i got about a minute left. I, we're going to have a longer discussion about this after the election, but what, talk to us about this and, and what we're going to see. Sure. Just briefly, it is available through Between the Lines Press. I'm having an online launch on June 15th. It's on Eventbrite. It is a book that tries to do two things. It tries to encourage women to run and and motivate them to run, but then it gives them a step-by-step plan. You know, here's how you choose where to run, how to find a political party, how to get nominated, how to build your team, how to canvas media, speeches, debates. So it's the kind of thing that I wish I had had when I first started out thinking of running for office. It's, um, I think necessary because so many women feel that somehow they're not qualified or they need to take a course or or they they don't have all the training or they don't look the right way and this book tries to encourage women to embrace who they are uh, if you speak with an accent if your your hair doesn't look the way you see the stereotypic politicians uh whatever uh, embrace who you are, um, show the struggles that you've had, be your authentic self, and you can win people to your team. You can support, uh, you can, you can support causes you care about and people will support you and you can win. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. It's, it's a great re- idea, I think, and, and and hopefully, as you say, maybe the catalyst to get people to decide to, to seek public office because we, we need more smart people there, to be sure. Let's count the votes. Uh, get out and vote, everybody. Peggy, thanks so much for this. Uh, let's uh, go through the, uh, the entrails of this after, and we'll see who did what and when the dust settles. But thanks for being with us today. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You too. Peggy Nash, former NDP finance critic, of course, who's uh, been through the uh, political wars and the election wars many, many times. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get back with an update on what's happening with uh, Ukraine and, and Russia. Uh, some bad news from a military standpoint anyway, uh, with what's going on with the Russian troops advancing in there. The other side of this, though, is the Biden administration seems to be set now to send Ukraine even more high-tech weaponry 
as it's forced to struggle to slow the Russian progress in the eastern part of Ukraine. Sagar Magani has some details. Ukraine has been begging for them, and the U.S. will now send four medium-range rocket systems. Which responds to Ukraine's top priority ask. Pentagon Policy Chief Colin Call says the systems are aimed at helping Ukraine fight back against Russian artillery barrages. For high-value targets that that allow them to keep some of the pressure off of Ukrainian forces on the front, we think these systems will be very useful. The Kyiv government has assured the U.S. it will not use the systems to fire rockets into Russian territory. We trust the Ukrainians will live up to those assurances. Moscow does not trust them and says the U.S. is pouring fuel on the fire by providing the rockets. Sagar Magani, Washington. To uh, get some perspective on this, uh, please to welcome back to the program uh, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Elliot, always a pleasure. Uh, Hope you're doing well these days. Hope you voted already. (laughs) Thank you. No, I plan to uh, vote right after we get off the air today. Good stuff. Well, I'll be shortly behind you. Uh, Let's talk about what's happening here. I mean, there was some good news we heard a a week or so ago that uh, Ukraine forces uh, seem to be pushing the Russians back in some areas. Uh, but it seems as if the Russians have uh, retaliated right now, and there's, there seems to be a resurgence in what's going on. Uh, thus, of course, the, uh, the American commitment for more arms. Is, is this going to make a difference? Uh, there's two parts to the which. The focus yeah. of Russia now has been to pull its troops from elsewhere to fire, uh, focus all of its firepower on one of its goals, which was to expand their control of uh, one part of the Donbass to all of that part of the Donbass. So now they are, that's Luhansk. So they're after the Luhansk Oblast. They want to expand that. They want to expand also to cover basically the entire uh, Donbass. And then they're going to apparently uh, declare it as part of Russia and maybe annex it. So this is a, a key moment. They are focusing high firepower on a small area. In doing so, of course, they're pulling troops away so that Kiev is now, Ukraine is now counter-attacking around Kyrgyzstan and other areas, which have now been weakened uh, in terms of their Russian support. So the, it's, a, it's a game of we'll encircle you, but you will encircle us. The Russians are gaining on the ground through what I've been calling the Syria model, this demolish everything in its path and then send in mm-hmm. the troops. The eastern Ukraine, though, the, the fact that they seem intent on, on annexing that part, we want to talk about Ukraine after this war is over and, and what it's going to look like. And it's not a pretty picture, obviously. Less so uh, if, in fact, Russia holds on to this land, this territory that they seem to be occupying right now, because the, that's the mineral-rich area of Ukraine. And essentially, you know, that seems to be, as you mentioned, Elliot, one of the intended goals here is to basically take that over. But you're not leaving a whole lot for Ukraine uh, as far as their economy is concerned and, and what would be left after this uh, just by that move alone. The... Uh... The intention, I believe right now, having failed in their effort to take over the entire state immediately in their blitzkrieg, they thought they were going to take over Ukraine, which, remember, uh, Mr. Putin says is not a real country and that it's uh, it's really part of Russia all along. But he couldn't take it all all over at once. So I think the intention now is to essentially make it a rump state, break away big chunks of it, uh, as you pointed out. It's uh, an agricultural as well as industrial heartland, a lot of minerals there. The, uh, that's been the Russian-speaking, most Russian-speaking part of Ukraine is where they first entered in 2014. In any event, so the intention is to continue that operation. The shift that you're referring to now is that the 
Americans are now providing under Joe Biden's leadership uh, much higher power um, weaponry to stop that from happening. And the question now is, will this be enough to make that kind of a difference? And and the the focus of the of the Russian attacks, uh, as you mentioned, it seemed to be initially, as we say, they thought this was going to be over probably in a week or so. That's not going to happen clearly. Uh, but then they started to focus on cities, and you could understand to a certain extent Mariupol because it's a, it's a very important port city for them. And we want to talk about that in, in a second about the, about the stuff, they not or the Russian embargo basically on what's going on there. But they they, they were on Kiev. There were other cities that uh, that they were looking at. They seemed to have turned their back on it until this week where they started, uh, again, lo- launching record, rocket attacks on some of those cities. It, I don't see the strategy in that, aside from just to, to demolish these cities. Uh, so they seem to be working on two different levels here. The notion, I believe, is grab what you can now, make it a rump state. If they can, uh, well, we should talk about Odessa as well as Mariupol. So the, the goal right now is to further dismember. Remember, they've already dismembered <laughs> Ukraine in 2014. They took Crimea and they took uh, parts of the Donbass, which they're now trying to expand and take all the Donbass, and now link up a land bridge so that the entire area, and they needed Mariupol, the, the key port there, as well as an industrial center. They needed that to, to make that land bridge. But that doesn't mean they've given up on taking over the rest of Ukraine in due course. So I think the idea is to reduce it now to a rump state and then later uh, complete the operation. Uh, the whether they can complete it or not, if, if they succeed in making Ukraine so, uh, so much of a rump state, it, it's no, no longer the Ukraine that existed prior to their invasion. I mean, Kharkiv was a target earlier this yes. week of, of a lot of shellings, uh, and I, I I don't see, and I guess a lot of the, the articles I've been reading don't, don't seem to comprehend the, the strategic value of doing that, other than just as, to terrorize the residents. I mean, uh, that that seems to be one of the elements of this right now too, is to simply d- try to deter and 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 diminish, I guess, the the resolve of the Ukraines. I, I don't know that that's happening though. Well, the the Syrian model is to degrade the morale of the opposition as well as mm-hmm. to degrade its forces. Uh, military forces. Uh, so go ahead and bomb hospitals, bakeries, maternity wards, cultural centers to break the will of of the uh, civilian population and break the morale of the enemy. Uh, that is a, a, a goal, I believe, of what they're up to. But that, of course, is a malicious goal. Let's talk about the other element of this. I just mentioned sure. uh, Mariupol and, and the importance of that as a port city. You mentioned about the economy and some of the mineral rich. It's also a huge, huge uh, agricultural uh, yes. uh, enterprise that goes on in Ukraine. As I think you mentioned to us in one of our previous conversations. It's it's known as the breadbasket of Eastern Europe because of the of the, the stuff that they grow and, of course, send out to other countries. Uh, the Russians aren't allowing that to happen anymore. They basically, with their vessels, they're they're blockaded. Uh, the Black Sea and, and Ukrainians can't get their their goods out, which is hurting their economy certainly. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there are a lot of other countries, uh, many of them African nations, that are basically saying, "Aren't people going to starve if we don't get this food?" This is, I, I would think, Elliot, an opportunity for states and other NATO nations to intercede and simply say, "You know, we, we've got to do something, not just for the sake of the Ukraine co- economy and the people there, but the other nations that, that need those products." Yes, the multiple elements to what we're discussing right now. One is that food insecurity around the world is going to go up as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those two states are uh, providers of a variety of proteins and and, uh, wheat sources for much of the world. They 
combined, they, they along with sunflower oil and others uh, seeds, they really are major pr producers of world of food for the world. And it's not going to happen now. Russia said, "Look, we'll we'll uh, we'll let out some of that grain which they have bottled up in Ukraine in exchange for lifting of sanctions." So that's not going to happen either. So that's one part of the the conversation. Another part of the conversation is that. The United States is now providing additional weaponry. That weaponry could potentially be used not only to some part of that weaponry, is, uh, which is getting all the attention, is to shoot down missiles as they're coming in so that much greater precision uh, artillery is being provided to Ukraine on the promise that they will not attack Russia itself. So Russia can pound Ukraine from inside its territory, but Ukraine is forbidden to um, to respond in kind, but it can protect itself better. It can also then use some of those other munitions to help break that blockade, to make, uh, as Admiral Stavrida said, to make the, uh, I'll paraphrase him lightly, to make the blockading forces around Odessa, the, the uh, naval forces, uh, to give them a lot of problems. The breaking down of the naval blockade would be a major step forward. But keeping in mind that behind all of what we're talking about, and if you read uh, Biden's op-ed in the New York Times, uh, he has said, we are going to step up the pressure on Russia, but we are not going to go to war with Russia. We are not going to have a direct confrontation between super nuclear superpowers. So the attempt to allow Ukraine to preserve its independence and sovereignty uh, while at the same time preventing it, the Third World War is kind of the, the major uh, overarching architecture of everything we're talking about. Joe Biden has said uh, just now, he said, here's our aims. No regime change there. No direct confrontation between NATO and Russia. No direct confrontation between NATO and Russia. Ukraine will make its own decisions on its peace terms, including territorial adjustments. NATO and the U.S. stands with Ukraine with increasing levels of effective weaponry. So the uh, independence of Ukraine, sovereignty of Ukraine is on the table for in terms of the priority for NATO, but let's avoid a third world war in doing so. But with that in mind, and I read this, the piece that you were just referring to from uh, retired Admiral uh, James Derudas, suggesting there has to be a flotilla, in other words, an escort uh, to get these, right. these products out. Very clever, uh, Okay, but not unlike, of course, what the, you know the U.S. had to do during, with the Merchant Marine getting supplies over during World War II, uh, and it, you could argue how effective or not effective it was, but it was a smart move to do at the time. If is is that going to cause the Russians to back off, or is there going to be a confrontation at sea? Well, that particular suggestion uh, has been criticized immediately as saying the only way it will work is if you're willing to sink Russian ships. Yeah, uh, if, if that flotilla is accompanied by you know, an international naval force to protect it, then they have to be willing to sink submarine, Russian submarines and Russian ships, and that could lead to World War III. And that's the, what I've been suggesting Joe Biden is trying to do in this case, is to arm Ukraine successfully to the degree that it can defend itself and remain democratic and, and sovereign. But uh, we do have World War III looming over us. And Admiral Stavridis, by the way, uh, co-wrote a book with a, the wonderfully named Elliot, Ackerman, not long ago, uh, it was uh, called 2034, the year 2034, a novel about the, the beginning of a third world war. So he is uh, 
very cognizant of the possibilities here that things could spill out of control. And every time an announcement like this is made, or even a suggestion like the Admiral has made, uh, the reply from Moscow, of course, is, well, you know, that's that's an act of war then, and, and we will retaliate in kind. Has that become white noise right now, or is, is Biden and, and, and the other NATO members uh, still worried about the fact that at, at any given time now, Putin could justify firing a missile at a U.S. ship and say, simply, you, you guys broke the treaty. I mean, you, you broke the rules here. Uh, he keeps threatening it. He hasn't done anything about it yet, but uh, does, does that mean he won't? Well, the overarching question there is is not only... Uh, might he take some action, for example, uh, to stop the inflow of weapons coming from Poland, and that uh, instead of landing on Ukrainian territory, the missile that's intended to stop that might go in, stray its way into Poland, which is a NATO uh, ally. And that would, of course, involve Canada, among others, because Article 5 could then be Mm -hmm. invoked. So an an accidental spiraling uh, upwards of this conflict but the, the broader question here is, will he use tactical nuclear weapons? And that was addressed by Joe Biden again. He's saying, we have not seen any measures on their part, on their part, to go beyond these reckless threats. And I agree, these are reckless and irresponsible threats uh, by Russia. We haven't seen them take any change in the defense posture. But if they do use tactical nuclear weapons, there would be severe consequences. But that's way too ambiguous for me. Um, I, I don't. I don't know what that means. Does that mean if a tactical nuclear weapon is used inside Ukraine, or perhaps in the Black Sea, as a as a, dem- or dem- a demonstration of might? Uh, what? How would NATO respond to the use of a tactical nuclear weapon by Russia? And that's that's a very big question hanging over all of our discussion. It, well, it is, and just <laughs> I'm just watching a. a classic western i was watching tombstone uh, on tv uh, last night it, it's like the showdown and the, the, the you know on the main street in the old western town you know they're both staring at each other to, who's going to draw first that's what it comes down to and it's a pretty frightening proposition yes but it uh, Elliot, we'll be following the planet <laughs> yeah exactly uh we'll be following this and as always trying to get your perspective on this and uh, we really appreciate you shedding some light on this thanks so much for the time today stay well and uh, enjoy voting and we'll talk about yeah, this later thank you take care Elliot tepper of course emeritus professor of uh, political science at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another mass shooting last night in Tulsa, Oklahoma, yesterday afternoon, actually. Four dead, uh, numerous people uh, injured and wounded. Uh, and we'll get the latest on that in just a couple of seconds. And, of course, this is after uh, what happened in Uvalde, Texas, in Buffalo uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and on and on it goes. Uh, Brian Karam writes about it in uh, Salon.com, uh, piece called I Haven't Gotten Jaded or Cynical About Mass Shootings, But It's Getting Harder. And he writes in part about uh, what happened in Nuvaldi, Texas. 19 children died needlessly, as he writes. Perhaps one of them would have been a Rembrandt. Maybe one of them was destined to be a football coach who had mentor young kids. Maybe one was destined to be a just and wise politician who would find a way to limit the ownership of guns. That's just a segment of the piece that uh, Brian wrote. Brian, of course, is a political commentator for CNN, a columnist for Salon.com. And host of the podcast, Just Ask the Question, which is a great podcast, by the way, to get a read on what's happening down there. By the way, his book is uh, doing great. You should buy it. You should read it. It's called Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. And he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about uh, the piece. Brian, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Good to, good to be with you, Bill, and thanks for the plug. <laughs> well, it's great stuff. And uh, I, I, I'm just fascinated by the uh, the follow-up and, and the reaction 
of of what's happened over the last number of times. And I know that you know you're shaking your head. I know you. The piece actually was published May 26th, and and we have the the, the Tulsa situation to deal with now as well. I know you said you're not jaded yet, but are you getting closer to it? <laughs> well, it's it. What I'm am more than anything else is frustrated because it uh, boils down to. A minority number of people in this country have vested interests in firearms, and those firearms are killing people. If you can't, I, you know, for the love of God, i got to get a license to go fishing. I have to have a background check to coach kids in football, which I've done. And none of those things do you need to do if you want to go buy an AR-15. You can simply walk in and purchase it. And I've covered too many times over the years. There was a time I covered in Texas, a uh, and this was in San Antonio, a guy walked into a Walmart, bought himself a gun and some ammunition and came home and shot uh, five minutes later, came home and shot his wife, his two kids, and then ended his own life. Uh, you've got to be able to have a cooling off period between the purchase of guns and the acquisition of the guns. You need to have a background check. There are certain people that certainly don't need guns. You, In many states, you can't even drink in this country until you're 21. Yet you can go and buy a gun when you're 18 and this kid and you've already bought two of them and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. You know, at, at some point in time, it's also the responsibility of the gun shop to go, uh, hey, wait a second. But we don't do that. Yeah, the first part of the article, the, the, the first few paragraphs of this uh, on Salon.com, it's still up on the page, by the way. People can read that after our conversation. Uh, you basically almost chronicle the number of these things that you've covered over the years, uh, and it, it, it was quite a few paragraphs. I mean, it's that, that, and as you mentioned, uh, you know, initially when we heard about these sorts of events, you said there's usually some tied to organized crime, you know, a drug deal gone bad or this gang going after this gang. How did it evolve into, as you say, random shootings where innocent people are, are the victims? Well, the first random, if you want to go back that far, the first random shooting that anybody heard of in the modern era was in, in Texas, the Texas yeah. Tower shooting in, in Austin at the University of Texas in 1966, which is, you know, they bought, you know, a guy got up on a tower and just randomly started shooting people. But those were... Un- guy's, guy's name was Charles Whitman, I think. Yeah, and those were an aberration. Um, they became almost a daily occurrence uh, beginning, you know, far more recently than that. And, you know, they picked up a pace in the 80s and the 90s, and you'd go out and cover these things, and it would just break your heart. And I can't tell you, the, you know, the number of times I've gone, you know, and seen mass shooting victims, and the, were always offered, you know, thoughts and prayers. Mm-hmm. What does that do? That doesn't do anything. Um, you, you can't think and pray it away. You've got unless the thinking and praying includes passing legislation. I think about the legislation. I pray it passes. It passes. Then I'll be- then I'll believe your thoughts and prayers. Otherwise, they're pointless. Well, and we saw that reaction, didn't we? After uh, what happened uh, in Ovalde, uh, you would have thought, uh, you know, that okay, maybe maybe this is the tipping point. I know that uh, President Biden uh, was certainly emotional about that, but you know, when the Mitch McConnells and, and certainly Ted Cruz and others uh, were questioned about this, they they came up with the usual list of, uh, you know, well, guns don't kill people; people kill people, uh, and it just seems as if nothing's going to, you know get through that that wall that they've built up around themselves well and and part of it is because they're owned by the nra they've accepted contributions large contributions from the nra and other gun lobbyists and manufacturers over the years and are beholden to them 
When you have money involved in politics, as we do in the United States, it corrupts everything. And uh, that's part of the that that is the largest problem. And and then you have to look at the one of the problems is where did the money come from that made its way into politicians pockets that came from the NRA? And you find that there are large donors from outside of this country, many of them from Russia, who contributed money to the NRA. So it's almost as if they're holding our uh, representatives hostage over where the money came from. And that's one of the biggest fears is that they'll be exposed for somehow being, you know, uh, uh, tied to Putin or tied to Russia. And <laughs> quite frankly, some like Ron Rand Paul are. So that's it, it's an ongoing, complicated, intertwined issue having to do with money, politics, greed and corruption. And I, I mean, what? And the result is there are children that are dead. Exactly. Uh, and, and they tie all these things in, as you mentioned in the piece. You know, they're, they're, uh, you know the justification is always, uh, well, well, we love our country. Uh, you know, Jesus, guns, and babies, I guess, as you say. That's, that's what a number of the people that are seeking office now in some of these primaries seem to be going. And it seems to be a message, Brian, that's resonating with an, an awful lot of people in some of these states. Well, it resonates with the same type of people in all of these states ignorant, arrogant, and in many cases, self-righteous semi-Christians who believe that their way is the only way. The, the idea that you could equate Jesus, the Prince of Peace, with a gun is just, to me, the most ridiculous, vile uh, connection that you could make. Uh, Nothing I, to do with christian well, exactly. You know, and it's their right, et cetera, et cetera. You know, with the Second Amendment and on and on it goes. Uh, but it, and 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 I heard Ted Cruz, and I'm sure we all saw the clip, of course, of uh, I think it was an Australian reporter that was asking him about this and trying to justify this. And, and Cruz just walked away. I guess he just may, I don't know if he's tired of giving the same answer or it was maybe the cynical look that the, the reporters were giving him when he said this. Uh, but you know, 24 hours after you know, these children were murdered in school. Uh, Cruz didn't seem to think there was anything wrong with the gun laws in the lobby as it is. Well, no, that's because Ted Cruz is a reprehensible human being. You remember, left the country when there was a yeah when the, when the infrastructure went down and there was no electricity over the winter. He's uh, some of the people that get elected to Congress. You would not hire to clean out your garbage can, and yet they continue to get elected because they um, have a, a great deal of money and a small number of very um, motivated voters who go out and elect them. Well, and we saw that, didn't we? I mean, you know, hours after uh, this this terrible incident in Texas, uh, what, a couple of hundred miles away, the NRA is having their annual convention, and there's Cruz and there's Donald Trump, and basically, you know, preaching that to, to the converted, I guess, in situations like that. But it really kind of takes the air out of the room when the country is trying to mourn the deaths of these young kids, and, and these guys are basically saying nothing to see here. Yeah, nothing to see here. Move along, move along, just dead bodies. And let me tell you something. If you've never, the most sobering thing you'll ever see in your life, and I covered crime for many years, and I can handle just about anything that an adult will do to another adult. But when you see an innocent child laying in the middle of the street in a puddle of blood dead, and you look at that cherubic little face, and if you aren't touched, you're not human. And by God, there's got to be something done about it. The, the guns need to be banned, period. That's all there is to it. This We cannot progress as a country if you're worried every moment of every day that going out in the public can, can lead to, um, you know, you'll be a victim of a mass shooting. 
And quite honestly, that's what, you know, I went, and this is no lie, I was in the middle of Ukraine during a war recently, and I felt safer there than I do in some places in Texas. Well, yeah, and the piece that I just talked about here in Salon.com, I mean, as I mentioned, said, I haven't got jaded or cynical about mass shootings, but it's getting harder. And you talked about this, and I even go back to your book. I mean, we didn't get into the mass shootings in the book, but I mean, you've seen this. I mean, you've you've covered crime, you've covered gang wars, you've covered wars, you've seen dead bodies. Uh, yes. And then, and you see little children like this, and you know whether it's, we can talk about Sandy Hook, we can talk about this. I mean, there are still people that deny Sandy Hook even happened; that it was all just yeah, a, a government ruse. It was a false flag, or it was a staged event. And those people, there's a special circle in hell, res, you know, reserved for them. Um, if, if you're denying what's happened to children, look, I, I, I've watched probably two dozen people die right in front of me, and I each one of those faces I remember. And, and distinctly, and it's just not something that you can ever get away from. And if you cannot, for the love of God, if, if you cannot be moved by the fact that children are being gunned down indiscriminately in school, and by the way, the police and their response is horrid, if you cannot be moved by that, then what will move you? What, what, what moves you about humanity? Why do you lack empathy that you cannot understand what these families and these children are going through? I, I, you know, as a father, as a grandfather, I cannot fathom how deplorable that, and I hate using that word, but because it was used to describe Trump and his supporters, but it is manifestly horrible uh, to, to not acknowledge that this is something that we can and should uh, deal with, and we don't. And, and the frustration here, I mean, you, you historically give some perspective here, the Clinton administration did pass uh, a, a, a kind of a watered-down gun law, but why did they put a, a, a sunset clause in there? I mean, after 10 years, it had to be renewed. Passed, as I remember, that, you know, they, it was a, um, that was for uh, weapons like the AR-15. It was an assault weapon ban. Yeah. You know, you don't need an AR-15. You don't need an automatic weapon to go hunting Bambi. I mean, that I'm sorry. It, it, there's The deer are not armed. You do not need to walk into a forest and be worried about a bear or a deer or a rabbit or a goat or anything else returning fire. So you don't need a, there's absolutely no point in having those guns when you defend them, other than the fact that they're being used to kill people. Now, you can sit there and say, uh, well, it's to keep my government away from me if the government becomes uh, overbearing. Oh, listen, your government owns a drone, and with a punch of a button, they never even have to pick up a gun. If the government would want to get rid of you with a push button, they could do so. So that's a, an erroneous argument. It doesn't make any sense. The simple fact of the matter is people, those people want those guns. There are some legitimate collectors. God knows that I, I, there are a lot of things I would collect other than antique guns. But nonetheless, antique guns are fine to collect. But you don't need to stockpile five or six AR-15s, which, by the way, with a bump stock or with a simple modification can be turned into an automatic instead of a semi-automatic weapon. So when Clinton and the, them passed those the, the assault weapons ban, it was to to stop you know people from walking into malls and and churches and theaters and any public place and just gunning down people indiscriminately. And the only way it would pass was with a if it was a ten-year sunset clause, and they all reasoned well in ten years. We'll see that it's done great things, and we'll renew it. But they, conv there was convoluted uh, keeping of the statistics. 
There was politics behind it, so the sunset clause went into effect, and the weapons ban ceased to exist. And now an 18-year-old can walk into a gun shop, purchase two guns, and then the next day walk into a school and gun down 19 children and two, uh, and, and two teachers. Aren't we proud? Speaking, yeah, speaking of which, and you just mentioned uh, the, the investigation that's ongoing. One of the uh, the principals involved in this, of course, is is the uh, the, the school uh, police chief, of course, uh, uh, Pete uh, Arandondo, uh, who apparently was on the scene and was the one that made the call to not send any officers in there for an hour after they responded to the call. An hour, and and of course, parents, you know, I've seen these CNN interviews as you have, thinking, you know, what my child might still be alive if these guys had done what they were supposed to do when they got on the scene. What's what's going to happen there? Please. You know, I, I I thought about that a lot, man. I, I you know, when I was in San Antonio, and I I remember one day I was talking to a police officer out in the street. We went to see him. He was a, just a street cop, you know, worked work to beat, and he knew his neighborhood pretty well, and he knew the people in the neighborhood. And we're talking to him out in front of like a Seven Eleven. It's called an Ice House. It's you know a little small store like that. And a guy came out while we were talking to him and, and made a gun motion with his finger and pointed inside. So the cop knew that there was a guy inside robbing the, the you know, the store. He didn't wait for, he, he we didn't wait. We went in with him. He, he walked into the store. He didn't wait for backup. He didn't wait for, you know, uh, some strike force to show up or SWAT. He walked in. He had his gun you know, he didn't even draw his gun. It was in his holster, and he had his finger on it, and he walked in, and he talked the guy that was robbing the store out of robbing the store. And the guy put his gun on the counter. The cop took the gun. He arrested him. No one shot. No one killed. No violence. It didn't make any news. Had it been shot, had he been shot, we'd been shot, or the, the, the you know, the patron's been shot, that would have made news. But the man did his job, and he walked in, and he did it, and that's what police you know, traditionally have done. And when you don't have the beat cops, when you don't have people knowing the neighborhood, and when you have a guy with an assault weapon, fear strikes in people's hearts. But I'm telling you, as a father, had I been there, I would have gladly sacrificed my life for those 19 children. I would have, I would, you know, and we had you outnumbered by God. <laughs> it's not like they were there alone. They had a number of people. It's reprehensible. And if I were a parent of one of those dead children, I would be, I would be beyond, uh, reconciliation i don't think i could ever I, it would be tough well and and the mixed messaging i mean because i know the the stories we got as we were talking to people that were on the scene uh, and uh, and they were repeating what the police had told them yeah we got there really quickly and we took control of the situation and right, right in the school and no they didn't and and the the latest version i guess is because there were some border guards there involved in in the reaction to to the call and i guess a couple of them finally decided I'm, this is bs i'm not waiting around and they went in and i guess the rest of the cops followed so they seemed at least to have some sense of responsibility is what they had to do uh but this guy who basically he told his guys to hold back I, I don't know what he was waiting for but those parents i guess are gonna have that question hanging over their heads yeah, you know, like there was a, a few years back, there was a shooting in Annapolis at, at a newspaper, a mass shooting in a newspaper. The response time from the cops was less than a minute. Amazingly, there was there were police on the scene, and they stormed, the, you know, immediately stormed the newspaper and immediately got the guy and saved I don't know how many lives in the process. It's reprehensible that they didn't breach, you know, that door, and it's it, it's beyond sad that that many children died in Uvalde. 
Just terrible. And, of course, the uh, the funerals for those kids continue uh, today and tomorrow with more of them, too. Uh, Brian, always uh, a pleasure to have you on the program under uh, terrible circumstances. It's been a hell of a week, of course, uh, in the States because of what's happening. Uh, and here's hoping. Yeah, we all need a midterms. vacation. I may be coming to Canada. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, we're banning handguns up here. That'll be fabulous. Yeah. So you, you can be, you'll be safe up here. Uh, Brian J. Karam, as always, Brian, take care, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Appreciate the time today. Sounds good, buddy. Take care. You betcha. Brian, of course, uh, from CNN, and uh, buy the book, uh, Free the Press, uh, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. I got mine from Amazon. Uh, get it in better bookstores, too. It's a good read. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.